Right. So one of the new normals that I've heard about is uh, remote working will become the new norm. So as a as a founder yourself, as a as a boss, how do do you support this idea, like allowing your employees to just work remotely as the new norm? So I started in I started in in a in a in a finance world. In in finance world, FaceTime is very important. FaceTime means that you have to be in front of your boss, showing that you actually work very hard. You actually have to like switch off the lights in the office. So FaceTime has been a concept for me when I started my career. It's very important that you have to showcase to your boss that you stay in the office very, very late. But as I work in HR Hong Kong, I actually changed a lot in terms of how I see working. I think the with working from home and with the technology, with technology, I think the line dividing work and personal life will become way more blurry. Will become blurry, and. I think work doesn't mean that you have to sit at office and and working in the office. Um, so even in Teach for Hong Kong, even before the crisis, we do have 20-30% of our staff time working from home. So each of my team members can choose one to two days every week to work from home. Um, and um, and uh, we basically encourage them to work from home. We encourage them to save commute time. And with COVID-19, I, I think we'll be um, Going to that direction even third even further, like we'll be encouraging more work from home. But at the same time, I do think a physical space is still important. A physical community is still important in a way that people need human-to-human interaction. And online is effective, but it's still lacking in terms of how you build bonding. It's still lacking in terms of how you basically um, um, understand people's feelings. So I would foresee um, office work will become more flexible, but that doesn't mean office itself will disappear. Right. Um, so this COVID-19 has shown um, all spectrums of human behaviors that the best of human side we see uh, in terms of like people just offering their help to help those in need uh, to, the, to the worst kind of human behaviors uh, uh, such as in, in the States right now, where like we see Americans beating up Asian Americans because they thought COVID-19 comes from these people who actually never been to China before. So it, it's, it seems to me like um, there are some sides of human being exposed under this situation. We see the racism thing being more and more serious. How, how, do, do you see any... Uh, bugs in our education system that needs to be addressed and do, do you think racism is getting more and more serious um i have to say uh i feel lucky right now i'm not in the states <laughs> because how in terms of how bad they they are they're, they're kind of like um, um dealing with the crisis and also the, the racism that you just mentioned um but i think in a way these kind of like human perceptions or these kind of like misconceptions towards others would always exist in humankind. And um, either it's racism, either it's um, sexism, either either it's discrimination against uh, the disabled or discrimination against like uh, the likes of LGBT. It will always exist. And um, I think as leaders or as um, 
young aspiring individuals, I think we have a more obligation to kind of like point or, or single that out and to help rectify those issues. Like if racism occur in your own community, as a young leader, as a responsible, responsible citizen, as a responsible individual, I think we have to have the obligation to stand up and tell others that this is not right. I think this is the right thing to do as young leaders. But unfortunately, in Asian culture, especially in the Asian, Asian education system, like humility or, or, or kind of like um, not speaking up as kind of are, are kind of like virtuals, like being deeply embedded in, in, our, in our brains. So, so I think we have to encourage more, more of that, like people speaking up and people telling others that these have wrong misconception or wrong perceptions of, of uh, people of a different background are wrong. I think we have to have the courage, at least in the education system, or at least in the work that ISAC is doing, we have to encourage people, or at least we have to educate people that, that you have to have the courage to speak up against things that you, you think is unjust. Also as a whole, do you see, uh, so okay, Maybe, maybe I want to ask this, like when, when you were studying in Harvard, do, do you experience some sort of racism? One way or another, like subconsciously, um, I, yeah, one way or another subconsciously, I, I think um, people would definitely, definitely view you as different. Like, I, I think the little bit of background is at Harvard, we have like 60% uh, of our classes are Americans, 40% are international, but among the 40%, I think half of those 40% are actually uh, spent like uh, over a decade in the U.S. So the whole culture is very American-based and we're actually in Boston. So Boston is a very white um, uh, um, uh, town and and uh, uh, the Boston, uh, and Boston, it's a very white town, a lot of, of white kind of supremacists and also people are very rich and there are a lot of rich white male in Boston. So the culture, it's very white dominant. And um and then and like I think racism there, there won't I haven't received racism in my face but I can feel like there's subconscious racism, and um and when it, when that happens I'll always try to voice out and I'll always try to make my voice louder, just to prove people wrong because I think um they often have this perception that Asians are generally more quiet and they're better in maths they just do the analytical part and I'll I'll do the presentation part and. And um, and sometimes I think um, we can step, we can basically say we can stand up and, and prove them wrong on that as well. Right. So so to to speak up more essentially. Yep. Yep. Right. Okay. Um. So so there are some questions from the audience because uh we when we sent out the registration form, uh we also included a question about what is the thing they want to know from you. Um. So so I'm gonna pick some questions. Uh for you to answer and also in the meanwhile the audience here you can also type your question in the chat box i'm sure anna would be more than happy to talk to everyone of you here uh, or if you want if you, if you feel if you don't mind you can actually unmute yourself and ask the question later on um, so now i'll go first so uh, i think this question would relate to all of us so we, we just now we talked about uh, what should leaders be doing in times of crisis and we talked about how leaders should be reaching out to the people more um i, I want to ask about like how you handle crisis in general like when you uh, know about a crisis like how do you go about it like what do you think about what do you do it's very extreme for me like um 
like I have my flaws as a leader. Like um, not, I, I always tell this to my team. 99% of the time I'm very trusting and I'm very empowering. But 1% of the time I can be very autocratic and I'm very, uh, I'm, a, I, I'm a dictator at 1% of the time. So when a crisis happens, and crisis always happen in, in Teach for Hong Kong, because imagine every year we send over 40 teachers to, to teach over 10,000 students. So 40 teachers, they will always have like run into issues, some bigger, some smaller. And um, we often receive complaints from teachers, from, from principals. We also often receive complaints or criticism from, from stakeholders. Crisis always happen. Um, for me, I, um, my, I structure my team in a way that um, my team members have full ownership and accountability of what they're doing. And um, for me, I think the first question I will ask is the person in charge, is he or she confident in handling the crisis? And if he is, um, I would expect him to come to me with a solution to how to solve the crisis. For me as a leader, I often expect, um, like, or, or as a boss or as a manager, that's how I train my staff. Or I think, or, or for any, as a, as, a, as a graduate, when I was at Goldman Sachs, I, my boss always trained me, don't go to your manager with a problem. Go, with a pro go to your manager with a problem and a solution. So I always train my staff to do that. Like when that, whenever a crisis happens, come to me with a problem as well as a, as well as a solution that you think can solve. And um, if he or she is confident in solving, and if he or she kind of like lay down the solution, and I think it's sensible, I'll give him or her the full authority to execute it, to basically solve it. And of, of course, um, if he or she comes back again and say, hey, Arnold, things aren't going, um, it, it, it isn't improving, I don't know what to do now, then I'll probably step in and propose a solution that can be very, sometimes it can be very draconian, and sometimes it can be very cutthroat, and um, and uh, I think as a leader, you have to make that try. You have to basically understand that balance. Sometimes, like a cry, if a crisis is not as severe, you can still empower your team to clean the mess. But if the crisis kind of like um, you have to have the professional judgment to understand whether a crisis have snowballed to an extent, you have to put in a very drastic measure. I'll never rule out the option of putting out drastic measure, but I'll, but at the same time, I'll always use empowering as my first kind of like tool to solve a crisis. Because at the end of the day, if you everything is if if basic if basically solve every crisis by having a draconian measure or, or intervening right away, you won't you, your team won't grow. Hmm. Your your team won't know how to handle a crisis because a crisis always happen, and crises are here to stay. Um, it's recur it, it's often recurring. So, um, but at the same time, I won't be fully empowering because sometimes if, it, if it's snowballing to an extent that it will have an irreversible impact on the whole organization, then as a leader, you have to have the acumen or have to have the courage to make some drastic measure as well. Hmm. So there's always a balance. Right, you, you, you highlight the word empowering a lot. Can I know from you, how, how do you define it? What do you think of empowerment? I think empowerment, like the, best measurement of empowerment is to ask how the empowered feel. Like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be the one who's defining the empowerment. I should be asking the one who are empowered by me to define what empowerment means to them. I wish their answer would be that when they are empowered by, by Arnold, 
I want them to feel like um, they own what they're doing. They are responsible for what they're doing. And they have the full flexibility and the full accountability to achieve what they're doing. And to me, that should be the right way of empowerment because they feel like they can implement their own ideas to achieve the goals that we uh, agreed very early on, no matter what means they're pursuing. Right. But how, how do you do that? Like, I don't want people delegate work and say that's empowering. Like, I want to empower my staff. That's why I give them a lot of work. But whether or not the staff thinks the same way, it's, it depends. Some staff feel like my boss doesn't care about me. Some staff feel like, oh, it's really empowering. What, what do you think makes that difference? I think, first of all, you have to really understand the personality of your staff. Um, or, or, or your team member. So every team, every every individual is different. Like it's, it's very cliche, but it's true. Like every on my team member, is very different. Like I I currently have an operations team of eight. So I manage these eight people on a full time basis, and I have to understand their personality and understand their motivation. Like um, to be very honest, some people don't like flexibility that much. Some people um, some people thrive on flexibility. Some people thrive on ownership. But at the same time, some people need a lot of concrete guidelines and need a lot of concrete framework. So A, I think you have to understand their, um, um, their kind of like way of thinking and, and, and their preference of work. You really have to understand that before you empower or delegate to them. B, I think ultimately to put a great team together, you really have to understand their intrinsic motivation. Why do they want to come to work for Isaac, for instance? Why do they want to come to work, to teach, work for Teach for Hong Kong? And in a way, when you delegate and when you empower, you have to get, as a leader, I think it's your, it's your responsibility to guarantee that during his or her process or her journey within your organization, his or her own intrinsic motivation are being fulfilled. And everyone has different intrinsic motivation to join the team. But as a leader, I think it's your responsibility to understand that and to ensure that those motivations are being fulfilled. Right, right. Um, so some, some audience also asked. Um, I think that's, that's a really, really important question too. So for all of fresh graduates uh, going to uh, uh, a job as, the, as like associate, um, if we are to prepare ourselves to go into a career and really to flourish in a career, should we focus more on technical abilities or should we focus on developing our leadership? Interesting question. Um, um, to me, uh, I, I see career in, I see people's career in, in two different directions. I think some people like to be a generalist. Some people like to be like a, a specialist. Like specialist meaning that you have a very specific field of knowledge where you'll be counted on or you'll be advised, you, you'll be asked for advice as an expert. For instance, uh, lawyers, doctors are all specialists. Um, you have you have to accumulate years of experiences um, in order to become a leader or, or in order to become well regarded in your own profession. So specialists are um, are a different set of careers compared to journalists. So I think in specialist, in, in, I think it also I think the question you ask yourself is whether you want to become a specialist or you want to become a journalist. If you want to become a specialist then you really need to pick a field that really interests you and where your passion lies. And you really have to kind of like um, swallow your pride and sometimes do the very basic work just to build up your expertise in that particular specialty area. 
versus if you want to become a journalist. So what is a journalist? I think a, a startup founder is a journalist. Uh, um, a manager is a journalist. A salesperson is also a journalist. Um, uh, uh, um, like a lot of careers are, are journalists as well. Um, an, an agent is also a journalist, like sales agent or, or, or brokerage agent or, or like a, a real estate agent is also a journalist. So a journalist, in a journalist career, you really need to know a lot of things, but you, you don't need to know in depth. I think for a journalist career, it's very important to, for you to develop people skills, for you to be sensitive to people's feelings, to be sensitive to people's needs. Because uh, by being a journalist, it means that you probably would have leadership responsibility very early on. At the same time, you'll be put into roles that involve facilitating people to work together. So if you want to become a journalist, you have to be, you have to have very strong people skills. You have to understand how people think. You have to understand how, how, um, how to make people work, uh, work together. So I, I think go back to a point, uh, there's no perfect answer to your question, whether you should be developing technical expertise or developing leadership, because everyone's career is different. But in general, I think there are two kind of broad division of careers that one can pursue. Right. Um... So I want to end with this, and then I'll open uh, like uh, to the floor. Let open this space to the floor to ask some questions too. Um, so, to a lot of youth in Hong Kong nowadays, not knowing how we can still make impact, uh, what what is your advice to these people? Um, I, I think uh, two two steps. I think impact is a very lofty word. It's a very generic word. Impact means different things to different people. Like a startup founder building a billion, million dollar business um, can be an impact. Uh, NGO founder building a nonprofit can be an impact. Uh, of, uh, an investment banker volunteering on the weekend, it can be an impact as well. So don't, uh, I, I, I often interview a lot of young people for our fellowship program. And um, when people say, I wanna make impact in my career, but without saying exactly what impact means to them, I think that's a red, red flag for us. I think if you, you say you wanna make an impact in your career, you really have to question yourself what impact means to you now. Impact, can, uh, that definition can change over time. That definition can change over time. But don't just say, I want a job that has an impact. At least say, I want a job that has what kind of impact? And I, I, at least you have a definition now because through that definition, you, re, you will know what kind of job that fits you. And at the same time, you will know how to make that kind of impact in that current job. I think that's number, the question number one, what kind of, like what kind of impact are you look, looking for? I think question number two, it's that um, never underestimate kindness. Um, like small, never underestimate small acts of kindness. I think as Isaacers, um, I'm sure you guys are all very um, passionate about making a change in society. But um, I don't think everyone needs to be a nonprofit founder. I don't think everyone needs to start a nonprofit or start a social project. Helping your friend to do volunteering, um, mentor your own um, um, Isaac members, that can be an impact as well. That can be an act of kindness as well. So I, I think um, to me, or at least 
small acts of kindness are definitely more important than having very lofty goals of impact, but without any kind of like uh, implementation roadmap. So I, I often educate or, or I often kind of like not educate, I often try to promote the fact that we need small acts of kindness from each and every one of us rather than one um, big hearted individual doing a lot of great things. We need a lot of people doing small acts of kindness. I think that is the way I see impact. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, so can we have some questions from the floor? Like feel free to ask the question if you have been wondering this whole time. Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Yes. Uh, okay. I think you can. Hi, JC. Uh, oh, <laughs> hi, Andrew. Uh, so actually I have two questions I want to ask. Uh, I hope that that's not too much. <laughs> it's okay. Um, uh, so the first question is, um, there's a friend of mine who has a similar background as you. Uh, he was an iBanker before and now he has a startup about education. Like now he has an education center. Uh, but recently because of the COVID-19, uh, he has a lot of doubts and then he planned to close down the education center maybe within a year, just let this batch of students graduate and then he's gonna close it down. But personally, I find that he is a very good tutor and a nice entrepreneur that I don't want the business to stop. So just before you tell us a lot of things about um, how you uh, deal with the situation now, but uh, what I actually wanna know is that is that some of the quotes or is that something that you would say to yourself when you are facing these kind of situations? Uh, because I really want to help my friend on this and I want him to continue this education. Yeah, that's the first question. Sure. Um, I wish you, actually want to advise you the otherwise. Um, so I, I think um, as an entrepreneur, um, sorry, sorry, I have to be very a little bit discouraging on, on that front. I think as an entrepreneur, uh, one needs to know when to cut loss, one need to know when to um, pivot, and one need to know when to basically say, okay, um, this project might not be working, uh, I might work on something else. Um, I think what for me, one of the most important traits as an entrepreneur is being very realistic. For example, in Teach Hong Kong right now, uh, next year we're cutting our budget as well. Like we're trying to be more prudent because in times of uncertainty, we need to be prudent and we need to be realistic. Um, we are expanding in our fellowship size, but we are not expanding in terms of uh, headcount and resources, meaning that we have to compromise a little bit in terms of our service. Obviously people will not be happy. My team members will not, um, will not be happy, but at the same time I have to tell them, you have to be realistic. And um, I'm sure your friend made a decision to kind of close down because of a lot, uh, because I, I'm sure he had um, his own consideration and um, the difficulty for him, um, it's hard to, for an outsider to, ima to kind of like um, imagine a difficulty. But I think my advice for you to advise him is to not let this kind of like quote and unquote failure. I won't say it's a failure as well. I, won't, I will say it's an experience. Don't let this experience, experience kind of discourage him or don't let this failure kind of define his, whole, his value. Because the, the fact that his center cannot go on doesn't mean that he himself is not a success. I think most important part is how he can learn from the experience and kind of bring that towards his whole next venture or his next project. I think that's most important. 
um, I don't believe in um, blindly carrying on just because of vision. I believe in having very realistic calculations on, on what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Sorry, I'm, I'm actually very discouraging <laughs> on, on, on the response. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's so horrific because I've never uh, seen from this perspective. I just think if uh, it's meaningful, then you have to sustain, no matter how hard that is. That that's just what I think. Yeah, um, I think I think you 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 are you are right. I think if you think what he's doing is meaningful, you can encourage him to do that in another format or at another venue, for example, through online or through other means. Um, yeah, I, I personally do not think that. Like um, I, I I I'm I'm a very realistic entrepreneur um and um I think being realistic helps us um make that make that far like I know how to cut losses we have a lot of projects that doesn't work in Teach Hong Kong as well we have a lot of pet projects back then we got funding we try to start new stuff and then like three four months and we know it's not working and then I have to make a very tough decision to really cut loss and I think that's uh, important sorry yeah. uh, to your second question J C. Okay, um, so the second question is on about leadership style and uh, like you mentioned a lot to be uh, more authentic and to be empathetic and uh, because like Tissue for Hong Kong it's for uh, it's providing like services you have to uh, really grow people I think this is kind of like a your mission uh, but I really want to ask uh, do you think it's important to be candor in your sector I mean like you speak the truth to your staff to grow them. I mean, like with a bit harsh wording to tell them. So as long as to make them to realize about like if there's something going wrong, like it would be perfect if you can like have an example of it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very good question, um, but I, sorry, I don't have a very good answer, but I, it really depends on people and it really depends on situation. Um, I can be very harsh with my staff. Um, I make people cry all the time. <laughs> but at the same time, um, being harsh isn't the only being harsh or being candid isn't the only way. I think go back to the point that I've mentioned, it's situational leadership. Um, some people actually appreciate very candid and frank feedback. Like without having those honest feedback, um, those people cannot improve. Like some people actually appreciate that. But some people are more um, like emotional, like kind of like more on like the emotional side, thinking that, oh, I want more um, validation from um, Arnold as a boss. I want more kind of comfort, uh, more kind of like, I want Arnold to kind of take care of my emotion more. So I think it depends on 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 people. Like some people need harsh, uh, want harsh feedback, want candid feedback, and some people want more kind of personal uh, validation and more encouraging. So I, I, I'm sorry, my answer is a little bit cliche. There's no kind of golden rule for all, but um, you, it goes back to the point, you really have to understand your people. You really have to understand um, uh, how your staff, how, how your staff are being wired. For me personally, I, I love MBTI. Do you, have you heard of MBTI? As a personality, I love MBTI. I'm a fan of MBTI. One of my best friends is actually a, a clinical psychologist. I always just, I'm very nerdy and I always just, um, just discuss how MBTI actually affects character with, uh, with my friend. And um, I, I, under, I really try to understand the character of, of, um, of my staff and, and use the right format to encourage myself. And I think that also kind of lead to a criticism that I've once had is 
me being very unfair in a way. Because sometimes I'm, I, I, I'll be nicer to the girls because I know I can't afford making girls cry. But sometimes I can be very harsh on, on the guys. Sorry, it's a little bit sexist, but like, like uh, in a way that um, 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 I try to be more sensitive to each individual in a way how they receive feedback. I don't think there's a golden rule to it. Yeah, because I come up with a question when I read an article about Jack Welch. Jack Welch, uh, he's very candid to his, um, yeah. To his Brutally honest. Stuff. He's super honest. <laughs> yeah, so that's why I'm asking because he is driving the business quite successful in his times. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, really thanks for your genuine answer. But just to respond to that, like if you look at Jack Welch, you, you mean the GE found uh, that the uh, uh, CEO, right? Yes. If you look at GE, um, he, um, Jack Wells is GE CEO, I think, till 2003 or, or four or something. And those were the time before millennials become the mainstream of workforce. I think um, the, the generation above us, so I try to classify myself as, as you guys, like the millennials part, um, the generation above us are different in terms of their working style. I don't think they, they have that much of individual individuality in, 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 in their workplace. I think people in the older generation, the generation of our moms and dads are more disciplined or more kind of like, um, um, they, they, they are more prone to um, accepting rules as it is. So I, I, I think the, the kind of leadership style Jack Wells have put in place for GE, very harsh, very direct, would work for GE, but would not, in, in, in that decade, but I don't think it will work in, in any company in this decade. Yeah, certainly it's very hard to accept those kind of brutality in office. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, by the way, um, did uh, Arnold, you just said you classify yourself like us, like, like a Gen Z. So are you going to ask my age? <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> So, you're, but you're a Gen Z, right? Because I don't know your age. So I, I'm 31 right now. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So I'm a millennial in a way. Uh, I'm like post 80s, but I'm definitely not. I don't know what you guys, what kind of generations um, are. Right. So someone asked you not to make a joke. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, uh, okay. Maybe we can Should I address that question. Yeah. Oh, edit, edit. It's a, it's a long question. Maybe, maybe Wun Chen. Uh, okay. Ms. Wun, After, maybe, do you want to speak up? Lama, hi. Uh, my name is Wun Chen. You can call me Sita. Um, but hi, Arnold. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I just have one question. Because uh, I feel like, yes, the topic of leadership is, there should not be comfort zone for the topic of leadership. But like, I just want to ask, like, being in Teach for Hong Kong for so many years, have you feel like this environment has become your comfort zone and will you be looking for new challenges or like new directions in the future? I think that's the perfect question to ask because um, I, I think uh, I Teach for Hong Kong has, I've been managing Teach for Hong Kong for quite some time already. And I think um, I have been in the past one to two years, I've been trying to move on to the more public facing side of Teach for Hong Kong rather than the day-to-day -day management. I have um, uh, been gradually passing on the baton in terms of uh, the day-to-day -day management of my team. Like I have a very professional team that helps me run the day-to-day -day operations. So my role right now have been uh, more on the stakeholder management and, and more the public engagement side. And um, I intend to, 
to do that because um, I think um, people do, I, I was very fortunate that people do appreciate my founding story. And then that actually helps um, us to kind of gather a lot of attention and a lot of resources for the organization. So I intend on doing that, but in terms of the day-to-day -day operations, I've been gradually passing on the baton, to be very honest. Um, for me, um, I'll definitely, uh, I've just turned 30 last year. So um, just like you guys, I, I, I am lost in my career as well. I don't know what kind of uh, directions I should be taking. But I think um, after five, six years of teaching for Hong Kong, I've always, um, I've always become very like I've always get to I, I've known education much better, I've I've all I've also known the society much better because I, I was all also making this kind of like reference like on a, any typical day I can meet um, a billionaire in the morning and meet a very local conservative principal in the afternoon. So the spectrum of the people that I've met in in Teach for Hong Kong have actually widened a lot in terms of my perspectives. And I have also kind of trained a lot of leadership skill set in terms of how to kind of bring different people, bring different stakeholders together. And um, whatever careers I'm pursuing, I, I want to make sure that I can utilize these kind of like, um, um, like leadership and cross-sector stakeholder engagement skill set. Right. What about JC? Do you want to like... Uh... Unmute yourself and ask the question. Thank you, Arnold, for sharing. I just have one question. Um, I'm quite interested in joining the education field after graduation. My question is that, um, what qualities do you think a good educator has and how could one inspire the future generation, especially in Hong Kong? Interesting question. Um, so for us, uh, we run through a very systemic um, um, kind of like assessment process. I think one thing for me, um, at, least, at least I teach from Hong Kong, I can share a little bit in terms of what we look for in terms of an educator. I think for an educator, um, the role of an educator, you're shaping the future generation of the city. Like the kids that you are teaching are gonna be the leaders of the society. So in a way, no matter as a class teacher or whatever subject you're teaching, you're shaping at least 120, 200 kids every year. So one has kind of like estimated on an average lifetime, a teacher would basically shape close to 10,000 individuals on an average lifetime. That means a teacher, an educator actually holds a very important role in terms of how a future generation look like. So I think as an educator, you really have to have the ability to inspire and kind of like um, impact the future generation through your own ideas and through your own passion. And for me, I think the most important skill set is to have um, the kind of like growth mindset. Because I, uh, because I, I think the world is ever changing. Like you're teaching kids that will be graduating 20 years from now is if you're teaching primary school. So you're, you're teaching kids that will be working 20 years from now and you really have to be very equipped with the latest kind of like technologies or latest development in the world. So having a kind of growth mindset to understand everything as possible and to be very open-minded enough to really uh, learn new things about um, uh, the society, I think it's, for, to me, it's an important virtual as an educator because you are basically shaping the future generation. One of the things that I see, which I don't like among um, um, uh, the current education space is that people still value a lot in terms of the existing pedagogies. Obviously pedagogies are important. Pedagogies help people to learn better, but pedagogy, pedagogical experiences or pedagogical uh, expertise should not be the deciding factor for what a good educator should be. A good educator should be defined by someone who can really inspire 
and nurture a future generation that are good learners, that have the love of learning, that have the ability to survive in the ever-changing 21st, 22nd century. Does that answer your question, JC? Okay, cool. Uh, so any last questions? Okay, I assume there will be no more questions. Okay, so once again, thank you so much, Arnold, for uh, being here with us today. Uh, you share a lot of great things, and I'm sure, uh, including myself, the audience here, learn a lot from you. So thank you so much for your time, and uh, thank you, everyone. This is the end of uh, our Zoom chat tonight. Thank you. So bye-bye.